Mark Butler, Labour spokesman for climate change and um, energy, I think. Uh, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Mark, let's talk about the National Energy Guarantee. We're told that we're going to get a final draft at the end of this week. I mean, maybe it will come next week. What are you expecting to see and what are you hoping to see? Well, I'm expecting to see a little bit more detail from the um, high-level discussion paper that was released in April that was certainly, I think, from everyone's perspective, a substantial improvement on earlier drafts. People were, I think all of us were concerned uh, that... um, that the early design of the NEG had the potential to further entrench the power of the big gentailers, had the potential maybe to lead to some further gold plating in networks by overemphasising um, or overdoing the reliability guarantee. And I think a lot of those concerns were mollified by the high-level discussion paper, but there's a lot of detail that, that needs to go into making sure that um, particularly this thing does no harm. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't stifle innovation, it doesn't sort of present barriers to entry for new retailers and you know, new companies wanting to get into the energy transition. So we're keen to look at that. I mean, I think in a sentence what the early iteration of the NEG um, probably did was to overdo reliability and underdo emissions reduction. Mm-hmm. And that was going to be bad for consumers, I think, if it overdid reliability, because it just would have led to big price hikes. Uh, and by underdoing emissions reduction, it just puts Australia further back in the energy transition and in doing what we need to do in climate change. Mm. So is doing no harm the best that we can hope for from this policy? Well, I think... well, well I, <coughs> I, I don't think there's any chance we're going to see any improvement on the emissions reduction ambitions here and that that really is the core problem with the federal government policy, not necessarily the design work that the Energy Security Board is doing on on changes to the national electricity law, but, but the core fundamental problem with this is that the emissions reduction target allocated to the electricity industry of 26 to 28 per cent on 2005 levels means essentially it does nothing to incentivise new investment, particularly new investment in renewable energy. Mm. So um, after the renewable energy target has effectively done its work, which is imminent, um, there'll be no price signal, no signal at all for new investment in renewable energy generation over the course of the 2020s from this. And that will strangle investment, it will strangle jobs, uh, and it will mean that the job of emissions reduction is simply shifted to other sectors of the economy that don't have the low-cost abatement available to it that electricity generation does. If the National Energy Guarantee does come into place, then what do you need to see to be confident that you can take that policy and actually lift your emissions target as, as you propose to do? The Labor, Labor target is 45% reduction in emissions by 2040, uh, 2030, sorry, and um, I presume that means a reasonably vigorous reduction in the electricity sector. Well, it does. I mean, one of the, one of the problems, I think, with the whole NEG... Uh, debate has been we've blithely walked into this idea that the electricity sector only does its mathematical share of the national abatement target, whether it's 26% or 45%. And I think the, the, the orthodox view for a long time and overseas has been that the electricity sector should do more than its mathematical share of abatement. Um, firstly, because it has the lowest cost technology available to it of any sector of the economy, but also decarbonising electricity decarbonises other sectors, other using sectors, whether that's industry or transport in particular. So this is a real problem, I think, Mm. um, because if you actually look at the abatement tasks between 2020 and 2030, not between 2005 and 2030, then um, under the Turnbull policy, uh, the electricity generation sector effectively needs to do nothing 
to achieve its 26% because we've got substantial abatement since 2005 thanks to the RET, whereas other sectors of the economy would be required to reduce their emissions by more than 40% mm. over just 10 years um, when they just don't have the, the technology available to it. So uh, this is a real problem. We, we found through centre estimates, for example, that there was no, in, no consultation or engagement with these sectors uh, about the fact that effectively they were going to do all of the heavy lifting that electricity wouldn't do anymore. There was no treasury modelling about whether this was the, from a cost benefit point of view, the best way to approach the national abatement task to essentially alleviate the task in electricity and shift it to other sectors of the economy. So there is a real problem other than the headline number this idea that electricity only does its mathematical share, I think, is a real problem for our economy. And yet we see in states like your own, South Australia, um, where we've seen some in really interesting deals um, just recently with Sanjeev Gupta and this um, major um, corporate bulk buy that he's doing with solar and storage for five major industrial con consumers. We've actually seen there that it's not beyond the Liberal Party to actually embrace some high, high levels of renewables and, and, and discover that it's not, not actually so bad. Well, that's right. I mean, I think I'm... I'm, I'm increasingly confident that the incoming Liberal government recognises that the energy transition that's underway in South Australia is unstoppable um, and it shouldn't be stopped, it shouldn't be slowed down, that industry wants to see the transition continue, recognises that this is this is not a sort of a course of history that can be reversed and, and the confidence shown by people like uh, Mr Gupta in uh, the ability to, to maintain an industrial base, an industrial base with a substantial decarbonisation effort in electricity I think sends a great signal to the rest of Australia and of course we've seen that around the world as well. I mean, we've seen that in the UK. In the UK there'll be a 61% reduction in their carbon emissions by 2030, not, not the sort of figures that you see in the government's data of maybe 4 or 5% but 61% while maintaining a very substantial industrial base. I mean they still produce three times as much steel in the UK. Uh, they've still got hundreds of thousands of automotive workers employed there while we've shut down our car industry. So that idea that, that the, the 21st century energy system can support an industrial base, uh, an industrial base really gets impetus by the vision, I think, shown by Mr Gupta. Let's move on to some of those other sectors. Um, electric vehicles is a really interesting one in transport. Um, they, the, the current government seems to be balking at any initiatives, even though they sort of canvass some. Um, Conservatives seem to be fighting back with things like you know, carbon tax on wheels, etc. Mm -hmm. What's the Labor Party thinking on electric vehicles and the incentives and, and, and what you need to create to, to encourage that? Well, there's, there's just been the most extraordinary um, shift, I think, in, in consciousness around this around the world over the last three years since, for example, I was consulting um, around our election policies before the last election until now. Uh, and yet I think everyone who watches this space understands how far behind the curve Australia is. Um, you know, maybe 0.2% of our new vehicle sales are electric or plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. That's probably about a tenth or a fifteenth of the, the market share you see in the US, the UK, China, France, uh, let alone the, the high flyers like the Netherlands and Norway. And you know, we, we, ours is a, an incredibly diverse car market, uh, one of the most diverse car markets in the world. Um, Australian consumers have more brands available to them than even the US has, a market of 320 million people. And there's a real risk that while the car industry goes through this transition, if we continue to pull our cardigans over our head, as Barnaby Joyce and others would have us do, Australian consumers are not going to have access to the newest models because the car industry around the world is shifting 
its capital investment away from petrol engines to electrics and fuel cell technology. So there is a real need to make sure that Australia isn't left behind here, not just a carbon imperative, but a real need um, if Australian consumers are going to continue to have access to a nice wide range of models that we recognise that the car industry is changing. Whether we like it or not, we're technology takers in this, mm. in this space. And the change over the last couple of years has just been extraordinary to see the big global car makers shift all of their R&D dollar from petrol engines into electric vehicles just gives you a sense that this thing could shift pretty quickly. Well, we've already become a bit of a dumping ground for vehicles which have got poor emissions quality because we don't actually have any standards in Australia. Um, I mean, could we be in, end up becoming, I think you mentioned before, is like the, you know, the, the Cuba of the world as far as vehicles. I mean, <laughs> I haven't been to Cuba, but I've seen the pictures of sort of, you know, these grand old automobiles from 1950s and 1960s. Um, perhaps people can come here to Australia for a little bit of nostalgia about internal combustion engines. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope, I hope not. But sometimes I listen to Barnaby Joyce and a number of the other coalition MPs who say things like they'd rather die in a ditch on the side of the road than see electric vehicles come into Australia and, and wonder quite what they see the future of transport in this country being. Mm. Um, you know, we do need to get in place mandatory emission standards. Uh, we are, I think, pretty much the only, only significant OECD economy now that doesn't have pollution standards on our vehicles. Obviously, we can see in the greenhouse accounts that's causing substantial issues for our overall carbon footprint as a country but it also just ends up being paid in larger fuel bills for mm. Australian consumers than need be the case. Mm. Australian consumers end up paying through the Bowser for poor emission standards because we have such fuel inefficient motor vehicles and the, the government's had a, a very straightforward report now for almost four years from the Climate Change Authority that simply recommended that we adopt the American car standards started in California and then were adopted nationally by Obama, uh, that, would, that would save substantial carbon emissions over the next 10 years to 2030, but also the, the Climate Change Authority estimated would save motorists about $7,000 over the life of a vehicle in lower mm. fuel costs. What it also will do is provide a signal um, that will start to spur the uptake of electric vehicles um, and other very, very low or, low or no emission vehicles as well. What about some sort of proactive means? I mean, um, one of the biggest buyers of vehicles is um, in in the country are fleet um, owners, and, and the government owns a substantial fleet. Um, would would Labor government turn the government fleet into electric vehicles? Well, we're consulting at the moment right through our policy area in climate and energy, and one of the really interesting and I think positive uh, developments over the last couple of years has been the the um, creation of bodies like the Electric Vehicle Council that are doing really interesting intellectual work along with Climate Works and others who've been working in this space for a while about some policy options for forward-leaning governments in Australia. I mean, the ACT's been doing some, there are other state governments uh, that have been doing some work on, on rego and a whole range of other things. Um, we're consulting about that at the moment. We haven't come to a landing point about it, but I think, uh, I think um, we, we've made it pretty clear we want to have a pretty ambitious transport policy to take to the next uh, federal election, as I, as I said, <coughs> that recognises that the car industry is, has shifted. Mm. They really have shifted in terms of their thinking about the future investment and we want to make sure that consumers in Australia have access to new models, but also recognising that this is, a, this is a growing area of our footprint. In South Australia now, um, transport is the largest source of carbon emissions. 
in, in the economy because of what's happened in renewables over there. Uh, and it's the fastest growing across the Australian economy, fastest growing source of carbon emissions. It's something we have to do something about. Mm. So states like South Australia and the ACT and Tasmania, which are sort of majority renewables, um, get um, obvious benefits from the transition to electric vehicles. That's right, yeah. that's yeah. right. Electric vehicles, of course, um, if the uptake is as um, fast as some predict, it's going to have a, um, a profound impact, not just on, on, on transport, but also open space and, and design of cities. Um, autonomous driving is um, something that's going to emerge. I mean, I just hope I get my electric vehicle before a robot drives it for me instead. Because, <laughs> um, But autonomous driving and the, uh, the whole concept of shared vehicles, it's actually not that far away, potentially. I mean, it could be 10, 15 years but it has profound impacts and hopefully benefits to the way we design our cities. Well, it, it will just change so much. It will be the most significant change to land transport since uh, moving from the horse and carriage, I think, is the, is the, the informed view of experts in this area. Uh, it will profoundly change urban design because um, on some projections, for example, by the UBS Bank and, and others, through the 2030s, you could see the number of cars being sold around the world collapse by as much as a half because um, of the advent of robo-taxis rather than self-driven self cars. As a, as a means of transport around the cities mm. of the world. So this will profoundly change a whole range of things. Mm. It will also <coughs> substantially reduce the, the cost to society of transport accidents, both in dollar terms, but also in terms of human lives. Um, it's a really, really interesting, exciting area of technology development. Anthony Albanese and Ed Husick wrote a piece, an op-ed, only over the last couple of days, saying that, again, um, Australia needs to start thinking about all of this, the electrification, the advent of intelligent transport systems in land transport in a coordinated way, which this government uh, is simply incapable of doing, because I think transport is starting to move more and more to the front line of the climate wars. Mm. How do you explain the fear of new technology? Well, well, I, I honestly, I, I, I'd struggle to explain it, in, at least struggle to explain the, um, the reaction that's, that some from the hard right and the coalition give to some of these developments in transport. Um, they're going to take time and of course there are going to be very different um, trends happening in transport in regional Australia. I mean the cities, um, the cities have particular dynamics in them but, but regional Australia has quite unique challenges and, and needs in terms of its land transport. So there will need to be um, transport technology that, that um, continues to meet the needs of regional Australia as it will regional America and, and, and the regions of other countries. Um, but I, I, just, I just do think that um, there is a tendency of some within the coalition party room to sort of grasp onto these technology developments, whether it's renewable energy or the shift to electric vehicles and see within them some leftist conspiracy. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Well, look, we'll just have to see how that plays out. And uh, Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Giles.